It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. And today's show is our federal law enforcement show. And so who better to be here to talk about what's going on today in federal law enforcement than John Adler, who was their pre- president of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association. Ooh, mouthful, Flioa. But now he's the, John, what's your title? You have a new title, new job. Yes, I am the bathroom attendant for all of their <laughs> special events, and I'm also the uh, FLIOA Foundation uh, national president. And first former uh, former president of FLIOA. And um, from the other side of the House, Women in Federal Law Enforcement, we have Kathy Sands with us today, who's the executive director of Women in Federal Law Enforcement. Kathy, welcome back. Thanks. This Good is, morning. This is the, the annual show where we bring um, Wiffle on to talk to our listeners about the conference that Wiffle's about to have in July, uh, in July um, out in Reston. And, um, and I want to preempt that discussion. I said to both my guests, um, both of whom um, you know, are my friends, it's always nice to see both of you. And to have both of you together in the studio is almost kind of fun. So because of that, I thought, why talk about what we always talk about for the first part of the show? We are going to talk about the conference, and we are going to talk about legislative issues. But I thought, <clears throat> would it, it would to me, if I were tuning in to listen, I think it would be actually more interesting to hear from the two of you who spent your entire careers in law enforcement and in these associations working on issues that affect law enforcement, federal law enforcement officers personally and and as a macro group. Um, You know, what are the big issues today in federal law enforcement? Um, I don't think you could be anywhere in our citizenry today and not know what the number one issue is for policing at the state and local level. Um, it's it's this perception of an abuse of police authority that's the number one issue, right? What's the what are the issues out there that are driving or affecting or of concern to federal law enforcement? Go ahead. Oh boy, well, I, I think one of the triggers that coincides with with responding to your question, Deb, is the news media, and it, we're sort of living in an emperor's new clothes world where you know we're effectively um, sort of falling victim to perception versus reality. So the feds, you know, our folks inherit a lot of what's going on, what's impacting our state and local brother and sisters in terms of public perception. There's obviously been a reduction in confidence. You know, but we don't hear about that. Like what you see and hear about on the news, because the news is great at dramatizing everything, right? Everything's very dramatic. I mean, I do think that Trump makes this very good point about how the news media has become, you know, a bit dishonest. Those are his words. I think it's just lazy, and I think it's about getting quick hits and quick bites, and so things are synthesized down to the point to be dramatic, but not necessarily completely accurate. You don't hear 
these I don't, John, I mean, maybe you do. I don't see federal law enforcement getting dragged into this conversation. There's a reason, though, Deb. We're not dragged in. We're there. I mean, we're there and we, we share the impact. But think about it. Who's most in harm's way in terms of public criticism or news media criticism? The man and woman standing in uniform. So local police interact and deal with impulse crimes. They have a higher frequency of engaging and stopping individuals, questioning them, and affecting arrests. Therefore, due to the higher frequency and the visibility, they're going to be in harm's way in terms of, of news media criticism versus the feds, although we do have a large number of uh, uniform uh, components out there. But they don't have the same exposure to the day-to-day news media blitz that, unfortunately, our state and local counterparts do. Mm-hmm. Kathy, from your perspective, you and I before the show were talking about how um, what is happening at the state and local level on um, trying to deal with the issues of policing that have surfaced. How is it impacting today's federal law enforcement? Well, I think uh, the result of the 21st century uh, task force report and its 58 recommendations, um, one of the recommendations is that the federal government or the federal agencies adopt all those that apply and there are a number that do apply, and one of the recommendations, of course, is diversity. Um, the public feels that uh, local plot departments that look more like them are going to be more responsive, but research really shows that diversity increases uh, decision-making and better decision-making. And so um, one of the things that we've done uh, with our fellow organizations uh, Noble, Hapcoa, Napoa, Nolly, is we actually uh, drafted a white paper for the White House uh, on increasing diversity in law enforcement, and it goes across the board, not only for state and locals, but on the federal level, on how, uh, what steps agencies can take to review their processes to make sure that they are getting the best for their for the future and increasing diversity yes right and there was one example actually did I read about it in your upcoming conference where the Border Patrol got the exemption um, to be able to specifically hire um, women you know and say we're, we're only going to hire women for this category because they wanted to increase their numbers from I think it was uh, like 12 percent no they were five and they were trying to increase uh, from five percent yes <laughs> Silly me. Yeah. And and the point being in that in that um, sort of job category um, was that, you know, dealing with women and children who were making the journey to, to come to cross the border, um, you know, that they had to deal with women and children issues and that, um, you know, women would be better suited to deal women policing would be better suited to deal with that. I had read some um, I'd read some something I don't remember when when I first heard about the Border Patrol getting that exemption to like target just the hiring of women, um, you know, sort of like a complaint that, you know, it's discrimination, right, because you're excluding men. And I thought, um, well, the person who wrote that doesn't, you know, understand um you know, Title Seven law because there's always that exemption if you have a good reason. And the example I give is, um, you know, I work, I go to a gym, and in the women's locker room, there are staff in the gym who are always cleaning up. And in the women's locker room, that staff are female. And you have to be a female to work in the women's locker room at my gym. 
And that's not that's not discrimination. There's a reason why that gender has that job, right? Right. And so I remember thinking, you know, there was no counterpoint to that conversation out there. But but getting back to um, the issues of policing in our country that feel like they're at a state and local level. The two of you are saying that it's it's I don't want to say trickling in, but there is an effect. It is federal law enforcement is being affected by these issues and concerns that are getting raised. Is that where was that what I'm hearing? Yes. yes. Yeah. And yes. And 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 how is it going to play out the the um, recommendations from the task force being implemented back into the federal into federal law enforcement? Well, th- How's that I, work? I think it's going to be slow. I mean, I was um, at a meeting the other day, and the attorney general was speaking of of uh, the mandates that she was putting on the federal justice agencies to. Um, implement training on implicit bias and um, also uh, training on uh, procedural justice, which is the newest concept of how we want our police departments to run. Um, But not only procedural justice is how we treat the public, but also applying it internally, which is a different concept in how we manage. Mm Mm-hmm. And John, you and I were talking. Is, did you were you the one who said? I, th- I think it's always an interesting point when something goes wrong in policing. Some one of one of you said this at the state and local level. I've always said this. Well, they're going to bring in the feds, you know, and um, sort of the, the the idea that the feds have always been a far more professionalized police force. Um, that that's you know we saw it in we saw it in Baltimore, right? Didn't they bring? Um, Correct. Right, they task brought, force. They brought in FBI, and um, they brought it in during Katrina. Right, they brought in the feds when things went terribly wrong. Um, but um, it wasn't necessarily for that. Yeah. To, to be fair to the local folks there, the feds were brought in because we have more resources in many instances. Our jurisdiction is broader. It's not perceived that way. So, but but the truth is the truth. You know, we didn't bring in that many assets. We brought in a couple of bodies from I think the bureau, from the marshal service, um, folks who have vast experience in the area. But not because we were any more professional mm-hmm. than, than Baltimore PD and the folks who were helping out in the area. It was more to augment and organize our law enforcement efforts better so we can incorporate technology, uh, intel resources, as well as you know mm-hmm. feet or boots on the ground, as we like to say, uh, in terms of addressing the serious violent crime problem. Yeah, there. I think it'll be very interesting. It's, it's, it feels relegated. The issues of the concerns Americans have about policing feels very relegated to state and local. We haven't seen that video yet of something happening by federal law enforcement. And I'm sort of curious, I'm not curious, I think it'll be very interesting in the next year or two to see how the, the implementation of these task force recommendations play out and to what extent, um, you know, federal law enforcement becomes a target or an issue. Because as we know, watching Congress the last few years, they love to be able to find, you know, something that went wrong in a federal agency and then make a big you know, um, sh- dog and pony show about it. And the only thing they've been able to do recently in the last few years for federal law enforcement was, um, you know, the scandals were um, federal agents in other countries, you know, prostitution or drugs or alcohol or something like that. But it hasn't been abuse of citizens yet. And I think, you know, that, 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 that the dichotomy to me has always been 
from a distance, like you are in federal law enforcement from a distance. It's always been very interesting to me that it's still very relegated in the public's mind to state and local. So, um, you know, so I think it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out for the next year or two. Um, and, you know, and we probably should do a show on the recommendations that came out of the uh, the task force. I do want to talk about what I think is the other big issue driving federal law enforcement, or could drive where federal law enforcement starts to evolve. Um, but we need to take our first break, and I think when we return, we can pick up with that. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. With me today in studio is John Adler from the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association and Kathy Sands from Women in Federal Law Enforcement. I started the show today um, wanting to ask the two of them what the two big issues or at least a few big issues that they thought were of issues of concern inside or around federal law enforcement. And um, of course, the first one had to do with the um, concern, the general concern in, um, by American citizens of um, the exercise of police powers. And um, for me, I don't know, I sort of get your opinion. I know from before the show, for me, the other one is there, are, and I know, John, you want to talk about a couple of pieces of legislation that would diminish federal law enforcement powers or authority. And I see that. I don't, have we ever seen that before? A, try An attempt to diminish um, it's hard for me to remember the last time. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a constant, Deb. I think there's always a, an extreme group of the membership within Congress that will consistently target federal law enforcement um, and our authorities. It's just a matter of how much play they may or may not get in the news media. Um, but typically, you know, their ignorance dies on the congressional vine. So it's somewhat contained. You know, we quarantine it. But it's always there. Mm-hmm. It's just the amount of attention it may or may not get on the floor at any given moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, if you watch the news in the last six months, I mean, there's been um, like the Bundy, there's been um, there's been these events or incidents where um, um, local populations, um, you know, take issue with federal law enforcement or the federal government's footprint inside their communities. And there's a couple of pieces of legislation, right, John, pending, um, I think, to deal with that. Um, that concern or belief, right? Well, what we're concerned about is, you know, the part of of the narrative or the non-existing piece of what should be included in the narrative is the danger and risks that our folks face. So what we need to also sort of simultaneously pay attention to is the growing number of assaults and attacks against law enforcement, the stated intent of ISIS and other terrorist groups to target law enforcement as well as the military, Um, The increase in ambush fatalities committed against law enforcement officers, these are real things with fatal consequences. So what we've tried to do in the FLEO world is take the initiative to have legislation introduced to better protect 
federal law enforcement in carrying out their mission. For example, H.R. 2137, which made its way through the House, uh, the Federal Law Enforcement Self-Defense and Protection Act of 2015 is currently uh, sitting in, in the uh, on-deck circle of the Senate and hopefully will move through um, by way of uh, unanimous consent uh, soon. Uh, this bill would prevent the disarming of federal law enforcement officers in the event of a, a shutdown in the government operations or a lapse in funding. The point being that crime and terrorist bad guys won't take pause. And unfortunately, during the last shutdown... Mm-hmm, during the uh, sequestration. Yes, yeah, during sequestration and the shutdown that unfortunately occurred, we had uh, too many federal law enforcement officers disarmed. Uh, some of the, the agency heads uh, came to the faulty conclusion that allowing them to continue to be armed would be, in effect, carrying a government asset, and that during a shutdown period, all government assets have to be locked up. Well, not true. You don't cease being a federal law enforcement officer because of a lapse in funding or a shutdown. So we introduced the bill to ensure that during any future lapse in funding or or a lapse of intelligence among our our folks in Congress, that we can at least guarantee that all federal law enforcement officers will will continue to be able to protect and defend themselves. You know, it's an increase in targeting of our folks out there. So the last thing we want to do is have law enforcement officers lock up their weapons You know, bad guys don't exist only nine to five as well, and they don't play by the rules. So the world becomes very small. If you happen to bump into someone you investigated or arrested, what are you going to do? You're going to pull out your book of verbal judo to defend yourself? You know, and the other thing also is obviously readiness. And this, you know, we don't get advance notice on domestic terrorist attacks, so you have to be able to respond to critical incidents. And if your weapon is locked up in a shoebox somewhere, right. you're not going to be prepared and ready to go. Right. And I think a lot of Americans can relate to the issue of readiness because you don't know when the next thing's coming. I mean, we've seen that over and over again play out in our country, and not just with terrorist attacks, that you just don't know when the next thing. And it's to me, I, it's, I've, I've, when I think about this piece of legislation, I think about the interplay between, okay, so they take their gun because it's a government piece of property and, you know, and we're sequestered. So you can't, you as a federal worker can't have access to government property. But law enforcement officers are different. They're deputized. And so when there's a sequestration, do they lose their law enforcement powers? And so if you, I don't think so. And so if you still have your law enforcement powers, how do you carry it out without, you know, you're going in your badge. So I, 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 I don't understand that. You know, I don't understand how they came to that conclusion um, because they're still deputized, right, during a sequestration? Yeah, it's sort of akin to being on leave without pay. So you don't cease being a law enforcement officer. You're either simply not being paid for a short period of time, or hopefully a short period of time, and you're not carrying out your primary mission. However, you can get pulled into play, and there are those who do continue to work without being compensated as mm-hmm. well. But the point being, you do not, you know, you don't sort of surrender your weapon and your authority. You maintain right. that. Right. It's just unfortunately the missions get impacted by a stoppage in funding. Yeah, and then there's, um, did I see also somewhere um, about a bill? to allow for the arming of um, park, was it the Park Service? Oh, uh, I think, uh, well, probation officers. Yeah, so it, there's, there's a bill, um, Senate Bill 2862. What it calls for is expanding their current statutory authority. Um, you know, under, uh, under, well, under the law, currently 3606, Title 18, probation officers have the authority to arrest their offenders to carry firearms like other law enforcement officers do. The issue for them is the increasing, the increasing number of assaults against them while they're out there in the field. 
So they have no legal authority to arrest a third-party individual who obstructs or even attacks or becomes violent during the course of the performance of their duty, their official duties. So we were seeking kind of a to dangerous ex- job being a probation. Very dangerous, and obviously, in light of you know the number of, of, of drug offenders being let out, their case inventory increases, and therefore their risk increases. So we wanted to ensure that they had the statutory authority to protect themselves and effect arrests when a third party intervenes aggressively physically so that they may be able to sort of take custody of the person the same as they would with a, a violent offender. Um, seems like basic sense, but unfortunately it's, it's sort of moving along at a pace that, un, that doesn't necessarily address the immediacy, the clear and present danger of the risks they face. But we're going to continue to advocate that so we can ensure our probation officers have the authority to protect and defend themselves you know, under all circumstances. John, what do you think is the likelihood of the bill that got introduced to um, allow op- the law enforcement to keep their weapons during a sequestration? What do you think the likelihood is that gets passed? Um, Makes it both through house. Uh, I'm going to be a dopey optimist and say very good. I think right now the Senate tried to hotline it. Um, one senator took a look. I think we'll be able to prevail by way of reason with that senator and ultimately move forward with, with the sponsor bringing it to the floor. So I'm very optimistic that'll mm-hmm. move forward. Yeah. I wonder if I took everybody's temperature in the room of our optimism that there wouldn't be another sequestration. Um, that's right, different. Yeah. Because right, yeah. right? yeah. um, um, that's always a possibility. Um, Kathy, for, for women in federal law enforcement, their big annual events about to come up. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that we got in front of it this year on Fed Talk and decided to have you on more than a week before the conference in order to inform listeners who might be interested um, in attending about your conference. And this year, your conference is being held where in your surprise location. The Ruston Town Center. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually I think is kind of smart. It's Actually, Reston Town Center is quite lovely. Yeah, it you know, it offers a lot of uh, opportunities for people to to get out and um, network with each other, and not just hang out in the hotel. Uh, and it's a, a friendly walking environment, so it cuts down on cab fare and things like that. It's close to Dulles Airport. Yes. Um, and so this year, your conference is the week of July eighteenth. Yes, one full week, and. Every year I look at this agenda and it is so rich with um, sort of academic, intellectual, practical, current issues. And I always, it's usually Margie who's here, and I say, who thinks this up? How do you get something so, it's complex, it's rich, it's academic, it's thoughtful. Um, I think someone who isn't in law enforcement would, would, some of these sessions are quite interesting. The amount of effort that must go into thinking up these sessions, like who, who, who's doing this? Um, well, I'd like to take credit for it, but it's, <laughs> right. it's really our vice president, Sherry Mikesell, that uh, puts the uh, Herculean effort into finding all of these people. Uh, but we also get a lot of input from uh, the agencies themselves. They offer um, uh not only speakers, but they offer best practices um, to highlight some of the things that they've done. Uh, and we receive um, proposals from the general uh, public that, that teaches in the law enforcement area. Yeah, well, it's incredibly rich this year with very interesting topics, which we're going to cover uh, shortly. It's the 17th annual leadership, Wiffle's 17th annual leadership training. And um, for people who are listening, 
Kathy, if they want to learn more about it on the World Wide Web, what address would they go to? Wiffle.org. Wiffle.org. <laughs> that's easy, right? <laughs> and do you have to be, um, to go to the conference, do you have to be in federal law enforcement? No. You can be any uh, um, sworn or non-sworn in any law enforcement agency. So, um, and... Um, but you have to be a sworn or, you have to be a sworn officer, police officer. No, you can be an intel analyst. You we allow if your agency wants to send you, you can be a secretary, you can be probation, parole, bureau of prisons, doesn't matter. So give us an idea of what the sort of overall themes are on this year's agenda. Well, we the three days are are broken down into the first day focuses on leadership issues. The second day is uh, law enforcement and intelligence type issues, the the crux of your day-to-day work. And then the third day has a little more focus on you and your federal career. Um, one of the highlights of the of the training is, of course, uh, retirement seminar um, to allow people not to uh, wait until they're five years from retirement to go to a class. Um, So it gives them uh, a little more insight into what they should be doing for their entire career for saving and investing. And we also have a section on investing for women, which is a little bit different because we happen to live a little bit longer. Um, And of course, you have the queen of all... um advisors on um, retirement. You have Tammy Flanagan, who comes every year. Um, I mean, she is is the gold standard if you want to know anything about anything related to um, your Social Security, your TSP, um, you know, FERS, CSRS, CSRS offset. I mean, she's she's like a savant. Yes. It's very well attended. (laughs) Um, uh, One of the things that's... uh, We've got a couple of extra classes that are on Monday, that actually before the conference starts, for those that, are, that can travel in on Sunday. One of them is Law Enforcement and Society that's held at the Holocaust Museum. And, uh, and we're going we're yes. to actually you, you, we spend a little time talking about that. Um, and did you tell me before the show that you attended that, that course? Yes, I did. And so you can actually speak firsthand about it, but um, we need to take our mid-show break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about that, um, the course that, uh, or the, the, the session that Wiffle's going to have, Lessons of the Holocaust. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal manager, you deal with a lot of information. Here's a tip on breaking through the noise. Join the Federal Managers Association to have a voice on Capitol Hill. And to get filtered news and information specific to managing your workforce, join the 50,000 other federal managers who already subscribe and read the free weekly e-report, fedmanager.com. I'm Todd Wells, Executive Director of the Federal Managers Association, and I approve this message.
Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. It's a show on federal law enforcement. With us in the studio is John Adler of FLIOA, the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, and Kathy Sands, who's from Women in Federal Law Enforcement. And before the break, we were talking with Kathy about WIFL's um, annual leadership training conference, which is the week of July 18th this year. And I'm very pleased to say that I had the mental effort and um, and um, memory to um, to say that we should get Wiffle on the show well in advance so that we could help Wiffle let our listeners know about the show. But Kathy, before we took the break, you were letting us know about um, the uh, the Monday uh, Monday schedule, which included a session on law enforcement and society lessons from the Holocaust. Tell us about that. Well, the um, the classes uh, held between the uh, Holocaust Museum and the Anti-Defamation League, and uh, they told us it got started because Chief Ramsey had uh, taken a tour of the museum when he uh, came to D.C., and that uh, after it had uh, finished, he didn't have a lot to say, and they thought, oh, my God, he hated it. And what they didn't know is, is two or three more times, he just came to the museum and, and walked the exhibits. And then he approached the uh, museum and asked them if they could devise a class for his officers about the role of the police in Nazi Germany and uh, the, the aftermath of, of what happens when a police department... Uh, uh, works in this area. And so that's how it got started. And they've now, I believe, have trained over 100,000 police officers read in the that. United States. But it talks about how the police were used in the rise of Nazi Germany. And part of the class is, what is it about American law enforcement that prevents this from happening here? Or... Are there aspects in American law enforcement that we have to always be cognizant about because they are a weak point in which something could happen? Um, and uh, part of it is is for officers to understand the importance of their position as as the guardians of their societies. Um, so. Uh, I went through it, and it was it was very moving. It, mm-hmm. it was um, it was actually difficult to get through part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes you reflect on your profession very much. Mm-hmm. Um, the second class um, is going to be women in American law enforcement, and it'll be put on by the uh, National Law Enforcement um, Memorial Officers Museum, and um, that's just going to. Uh, it's related to the there's going to be a, a women's um, section in the law enforcement. Apparently, they're going to have an exhibit. Yes. Isn't that nice? And a history uh, of women in law enforcement. And so it will give women a chance to um, look at look at our history. How what what, what happened before 1969? What positions did women um uh, work in and um, what was the difference between then and today? Um, so we're excited about that. And then, but can I? I just sure. wanted to um, inter inter 
inner whatever, this one thought um, about the law, the lessons of the Holocaust. It was something, Kathy, that I was telling you about before the show that I had Craig Floyd, um, who you both know. I had Craig Floyd on the show a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago. And um, so before the recent, um, you know, encounters we've had with YouTube videos of police events um, that have inspired the Black Lives Matter movement. It was, it was well before that. And he came on the show. Um, he's on the show a couple times a year. And um, maybe he came on for, for, for police week. I don't remember. And um, he was um, doing his Craig Floyd shtick about, you know, the importance of policing in America and it was all about this thin blue line between, you know, the evil bad guys and, um, you know, order. And, and, um, and it occurred to me, I had this moment of like a current and, and that he viewed it as, you know, there was the way he articulated policing in our country as sort of an us versus them, the bad guys. And, and, um, and as a citizen, I have a very different view of police. Um, and so I said to him, you know, in our country, when you're in trouble, you call the police. And when they show up, it's a good thing. In 50% of the world, when the police show up, it's a bad day. And he didn't really get it at first. And so I was like, you know, police in many countries. And so it comes back to this lessons of the Holocaust, they're the arms of, you know, oppression um, and dictators and, um, and the doers of evil against their citizens. And you think about what you hear on the news every day and how, in other countries and how it's the police actually carrying it out against their citizens that we're in a, we're, you know, for all of our problems that we think we have, we're a pretty lucky country. Oh, yeah. And, um, and I think it's, you know, considering that it's so interesting to see that they would still that Ramsey would see this interest in having um, this you know developing this session on the lessons from the Holocaust. That's a great American, you know that, that you're always concerned about preserving the democracy, preserving the democracy. I think that's really yes. very special because um, most Americans would never how how could we ever get there, right? Um, yeah, you know. How could we ever get to that point in our country that the police could become the arm of that? And um, um, so I think that's a, and that a hundred, and then I saw Kathy that a hundred thousand police officers in our country have already attended that, and I thought that's really interesting. They think it's interesting too. Yeah, I, I believe the um, every uh, new FBI agent has to go through the class. I'm pretty sure that was that's one of the re new requirements over in their agency. So, um, so I encourage people to go online and read about because you have on your website you have a whole description of what that class is about. But it made me think again about how lucky we are to be in a country that when the police show up, for most of us, for most of us, when the police show up, it's a good thing they're here to help. Yes. Um, and how not? And how? And how? How does a country get to the point where when the police show up, it's it's bad? It's a bad day. So that's day one, right? That's day one of your. Um, of your conference. That's the pre that's the pre day. That's the pre day. That's not even day one. Day one is is our opening day and that's uh, typically our leadership day. Um, and um, part of our day is going to be um, helping women 
find their way in this new leadership role as the 21st century policing starts to change the culture of law enforcement. Nobody has any idea what it's going to be like 10 years from now. Uh, the only thing we know is that we won't be here. Um, so it's the ne- it's time and there'll for be the body next- cameras. <laughs> yes. It's time for the next generation to start learning how to lead in this new environment. Um, so we're going to uh, work in areas like that. We're also going to um, uh, talk about the impact of uh, the implications of the 21st century policing on federal law enforcement. Which is sort of what we talked about a little yes. bit at the beginning of the show. Um, and then the second day, uh, we start to go into some of the the um, the core th- things of your job. Uh, uh, FBI is going to talk about active shooter and crisis management. We're going to have um, the cutting edge trends in um, trafficking of humans, uh, the prosecutions, which has been a theme at Wiffle's conferences for the last few years. It's it's one of the areas mm-hmm. that we work on heavily, mm-hmm. the human trafficking and also violence against women. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll also, uh, Wednesday, our, our second day, also we'll have our uh, Wiffle Awards luncheon in which we honor the contributions of women to their agencies and to the profession. And we close that day out with flash mentoring. And if you haven't been through flash mentoring, it's kind of a little bit like speed dating, uh, where the mentor sits at a table and then the protégés sit for one question. The mentor answers a question. They talk about that question for about 20 minutes. A bell rings. And then all the protégés get up and go to another mentor. Um, And we do that for four rounds. Um, It's been um, very successful. And the nice thing about uh, doing it in the D.C. area is that we, we have a variety of uh, women executives that have volunteered to uh, participate this year. So we're very happy on that. And then on Thursday, we're going to have a class by uh, Janine Driver, who does verbal and nonverbal um, assault indicators. And uh, she's a best-selling author for the, yes, for the New York is. Times list, right? And that's going to be an extended class. Uh, so it'll be quite long, uh, with breaks, of course. But um, it'll be, it'll be um, people will be able to get a little more entrenched into the, the information that they're going to need. Um, and, of three, course, It's a three-hour presentation. Yes. And we'll also so she's definitely them. diving deep. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we'll have um, cybersecurity with um, Gregory Evans. And then the afternoon is dedicated to uh, Tammy Flanagan and retirement. And, of course, this year we're going to also have a, uh, a morning 5K fun run. At 7 a.m.? Uh, it's probably going to start before that. I think you have to get in line before 7 a.m. Um, but it'll also be July, so you'll want to be out there early. And then, of course, uh, on Monday morning, for those that uh, can attend, take leave or happen to be on vacation anyway, 
Um, we'll have our annual Julie White Cross golf tournament where the proceeds go to support the Wiffle Scholarship Fund. Mm-hmm. And I see you've invited Loretta Lynch, the Attorney General, to be your keynote speaker. Yes, but she has had to decline. Oh. We're working on a replacement. Because um, the year that I um, emceed the award ceremony, she got the... Um, the award, yes, the, the, the President's Award. The President's Award yes. of um, um, you know Career in, in Federal Law Enforcement. And then... What a coincidence, the next year she was named Attorney General. So I like to tell people that I've actually met and given an award to the Attorney General, but she was then the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of New York. So it was really fun to meet her. Yes. Um, But so, oh, that's too bad she declined. But I'm sure you'll get another great speaker. Um, And again, for those who are interested and learn more about it or to sign up for it, they can go to wiffle.org. We're going to take the final um, break of our show. When we come back, we're going to spend the last 15 minutes catching up with John um, on other legislative initiatives that Fleo is working on and get his sense of what what will pass and what won't. Um, but you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. It's a show on federal law enforcement. With me in the studio is John Adler. He's with the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association. For those of you who are in the know, that's Fleawa. We have Kathy Sands. She's from Women in Federal Law Enforcement. For those of you in the know, that's called WIFAL. Kathy just told us um, she basically walked through the four, four or five-day agenda um, for their annual conference, which is this year in Reston, Virginia, which is really lovely. The Reston Town Center is really lovely. It's a nice place to, place to um, spend a few days. And the agenda, of course, as I said before, is, is, is really thoughtful. It's academic. It's intellectual. It's very practical. And it feels very current. So for those of you who might be interested, you might want to take a look at their website. John, while we have you here, it's always fun to catch up on what legislation um, is, um, you know, Fulioa is either for or against and why gives you a great insight into um, sort of what our lawmakers are doing, tinkering with in the in the area of law enforcement, federal law enforcement. We talked about a few at the beginning of the show. What else do we have? So during National Police Week, which was the week of, of May 15th, the uh, Fulioa national offices were were on the Hill meeting with their elected officials to discuss our priority issues in federal law enforcement. One of them, which is not currently a bill, but it, it kind of comes back to what we were speaking about earlier on the officer safety front, mm-hmm. impacts the Postal Service police officers. Very critical issue. So a little rolling back of the clock in or around September 2014, the personnel database for the Postal Service was hacked, similar to what happened with you OPM. You know, I saw that. I read something in your magazine. So that's not the OPM hack. No, it's separate. Okay. It's, it's a whole special um, separation of hacking. Mm-hmm. So what it did in effect so was... we're just it, getting it, hacked everywhere. Right. It's almost why bother? Why bother with locks and alarm systems? So uh, ultimately what, what, what that does in effect is it makes available to the bad folks the names, positions, home addresses of postal police officers as, re- as well as other postal employees. 
So here's the concern it impacts our postal police officers. Under the current postal service policies, and by the way, they're sworn law enforcement officers with statutory authority, Title 18, 3061. They can carry a firearm, make arrests. So they're the real deal. They're not the Mickey Mouse police. Unfortunately, current policy requires them to lock up their government-issued firearm. It's policy, not law, right? Correct. At the end of the day. But the trick is that they're not allowed to carry a personally owned firearm on postal property. So what does that mean? It means from the time they leave their residence to when they get work, come to work, they're exposed. They're unarmed. Now, they can't, you know, the postal police officers do not want to secure their weapons in their personal vehicle if they're not parked in a secured area. So it makes absolutely no sense. And in light of some of the statistics I hit on earlier and even the trend and the, the sort of the stated intent by some of these terrorist groups, we're left mind boggled as to why this is the case. So we've been appealing to the different folks on the Hill to communicate to the Postmaster General on our behalf saying, hey, could you please remedy this? You know, their personal information is out there. They can easily be targeted. And I, I hate to say, and I'm and not being facetious, but the, the term, you know, going postal, there is history to this. So these are the officers responsible with dealing not only with employees, but anyone on the outside. You know, they sort of support the Postal Inspection Service. They have patrol functions, you know, investigative functions. Are, they un- are these the so, uniformed? These are your uniformed Correct. Officers? These are the uniformed folks. So it makes absolutely no sense why we would want to endanger the officers. So we're, we're hoping that to appeal to the Postmaster General, who's relatively new, mm-hmm. um, to sort of change policy to now allow the, these folks to protect and defend themselves um, 24 hours a day, and also comes back to sort of uh, critical incident readiness. So if you're a postal police officer and you're coming to work and there's an incident and you roll up on it, you're unarmed, and what can you do? You can't even engage to stop an active shooter situation or another violent situation because of this policy, which makes no sense. So that was, I just wanted to get that in mm-hmm. there and you, because you, it's a critical you, officer safety well, issue. Well, and FLEO was able to get uh, Congressman Mike Fitzpatrick um, to Correct. write a letter a few months ago to the um, Postmaster General raising the issue. And do, do you know if you ever, if, if yes, they got a response? Congressman Peter King and Senator Toomey and others as well. Yeah, they the, the initial response was somewhat disheartening. They tried to mm. just simply relegate it as to a union collective bargaining issue. But anyone who knows anything about collective bargaining, officer safety doesn't fall into collective bargaining. Collective bargaining is about pay and benefits and workplace issues, but it doesn't come into officer safety. So it's unfortunately, it's it's somewhat sad that the staffer who came back with that response really doesn't embrace the clear and present danger. I mean, one question was put to the Postmaster General. So now that their personal information has been compromised, what steps have you taken to better secure uh, their ability to protect themselves? And the answer is, oh, well, it's a collective bargaining issue and it'll come up in 2017. I mean, that, that's just the that's a very that unprofessional The answer to response. that was we've done nothing. Yes, we've done nothing and we don't want to engage on the issue. And unfortunately, we'll, hopefully we'll never lose one of our officers to prove the point of how foolish and reckless that position is. We're going to continue to appeal. You know, we want to make sure the PMG is aware of it. Hopefully she'll be able to weigh in and convene with a more sensible policy that will eliminate this officer's safety vulnerability. I agree. It's too bad it got relegated to the, um, you know, workplace, um, you know, conditions, yeah. um, which is collective bargaining. But Deb, one thing I wanted to hit on. So I'm the national president of the foundation, and what the foundation does, in effect, is it provides funding and support for the families of our men and women who get killed in the line of duty, or seriously injured, or become medically ill. We also award scholastic incentive awards to members' children entering college. But one of the things we have coming up in July. Um, is a law enforcement appreciation event at Fenway Park for the Boston Red Sox. Now, um, 
you know, a very sad moment for Fleoa. Yeah. Our brother Chris Schottmeyer passed away after a courageous battle with cancer for one year. Uh, we are going to honor Chris's family on field during the pregame ceremony. How did you pull that off? Well, it, Chris actually pulled it off. It's through Chris's blood, sweat, and tears that we have this relationship. You know, rolling back the clock when the Boston Marathon terrorist attack occurred, Chris worked with the Red Sox management around the clock to set up a game where all of the responding officers could take a break, come down, be recognized for their great efforts, and just sort of have a breather and celebrate, as you said earlier, you know, Deb, the real role and purpose of law enforcement. And thanks yeah, to Chris's efforts. For most people in our country, when the police show up, it's because we need them. It's a good thing, right. So Chris did a great job working with Boston. They set up a great event. And since that time, Chris has worked with them to put on one or two events each year to honor and recognize law enforcement. But also, Deb, as you said, to bridge the us versus them. So it's sort of getting the public and law enforcement together, you know, to celebrate our shared objective, which is to live here civilly and peacefully, you know, respect the law. It's not an us versus them. It's shared. But anyhow, so I'm looking forward to honoring Chris's family. It's going to be a great event. The game is July 25th. Um, we'll be posting soon the tickets online. Mm-hmm. A pro- the portion of the proceeds, I think it's $5 per ticket, goes wow. to the foundation. Wow. So Boston, we, we really are appreciative of their generosity. And, uh, you know, Chris's family, they're as wonderful as he was and, and, and will always be in our memory. So um, we were hoping for a very big turnout to pay respects to Chris, as well as our first responders who um, actually, you know, sort of rose to the challenge after that, that heinous attack um, on the marathon and, you know, performed heroically. And that goes for federal, state, and local um, who responded in, in the aftermath of that that terrible. What a nice way attack. to honor him. Yeah, he's he's a, a, a phenomenal human being. Honor and, him, and, and, raise money for the foundation, and everybody's at Fenway having fun. Yes, yes. In and, the blistering heat. Yes. Well, that's okay. They they have cool beverages to keep everyone uh, from dehydrating. Um, but any event, so, so we got about four more minutes. Yeah. So I mean, I, I wanted to get that in there because yeah, you know no, we love Chris great. and it's going to be a great event. Um, He's a great guy. Now, Deb, you know, you asked the question, what's going to get done? The Congress may or may not name a couple of post offices between now and, and the, the end of the uh, session. Unfortunately, we're still going to. They're push. certainly not going to close any post offices. No, well, no, and I don't think they're going to raise the price of stamps anymore. Although with, with with the literacy rates declining, it may not matter. Other than I guess those like me who still pay our bills by mail, but. In any event, yes, and Deb's in my corner too. God bless us, us folks. So uh, the one thing on the Hill, now you mentioned what we're opposed to. We're opposed to the sensing, the so-called Sensing Reform and Correction mm-hmm. Act. We, we really Where, What's object, the status of that? Where is it? Uh, it's, it, it's, it's, it's still, it's heading towards, I mean, I, I would imagine more floor debate. Um, the thing is, we object to the characterization of, of the peddlers of death, as we refer to drug dealers, as nonviolent. They're inherently violent by virtue of what they do and, and the behavior they engage in. You know, we, we object to the mischaracterization of, of, of folks being incarcerated for a long time that are sort of likable Cheech and Chong, not Cheech and Chong, but yeah, Cheech and Chong type <laughs> hippies, you know, who are out there smoking the doobie during Woodstock. These are not the folks we have incarcerated for a long time. You know, the prosecutors have a lot of discretion. The current system does work. The attorney general issues memorandums that the U.S. attorneys have to follow. Um, There are a lot of things in play, but I I just think it's such an extreme overreaction and misinterpretation to the underlying problem that we really face in terms of incarceration, and that's that big I-word, immigration. That's what's consuming our resources. All of the folks who who have violated the immigration laws, and a majority of them in the federal level, are the ones also violating the drug laws. That's where our monies are being spent. That's what's consuming. If you look at the U.S. Sentence Commission report, the pie chart of incarceration, 
That's what's consuming the greatest amount of our resources. Immigration, not drugs, not the little white collar guy. That's about seven or eight percent. Immigration, I think it's over 40 percent. Mm-hmm. Well, so, and you have a Congress that has refused, refused for eight exactly years right. to deal with immigration reform, um, which every, every I think, can you find an American who doesn't think we need immigration reform? People might differ on what the reform should be, but um, but I don't think you'd find you know, a, an American who actually is an active citizen who reads newspapers or whatever you do, you read it online and votes in, in most elections, who doesn't think immigration reform is needed. You're right, Deb. It's such it's unfortunately a sort of Neanderthal pr- approach in terms of it's either a build a wall or a path to citizenship. And it's folks, it's 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 not that simple. It's sort of it's broad and encompasses both, you know, roll up your sleeves and, and sort of do the important work that needs to get done. But unfortunately, it's going to roll over to the next session. Mm-hmm. It, Right. Well, immigration reform. Sure, sure. Yeah, hopefully the Sentencing Reform Correction Act will will roll over and and also reach reach, uh, rigor mortis on the vine as well. So we have one more minute, John. What else do you have? Uh, Well, other than the gray hair on my head, um, you know, we have 2254 on the House side, more recently introduced, Senate 2946, the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Equity Act. What we're hoping to accomplish is we want the law enforcement retirement benefits made available to our uniform components. I've never understood why they're not, why they don't get it. I mean, why, why are they not police officers? You know, it is historically the the, the plainclothes folks, if you will, the criminal investigators, special agents, inspectors and so forth. Well, in, within the Postal Service, anyhow, they have, you know, Law Enforcement Availability Pay Act was passed. It's supposed to be available 24-7. So the same legal requirement wasn't put on our uniform folks who are in a different GS classification. But we maintain that due to the risks, you know, the rigors of the job that they face are commensurate with our special agent group as well, that they should be entitled to the same law enforcement 20-year retirement minimum age 50, 25 years in of service at any age. Um, and we're going to hopefully move forward with that into the new session. Obviously, it's a money issue, but... The theory is sound, and we need to make sure our folks are treated mm-hmm. in the proper way. And you certainly get our support here at Fed Talk. We'll bring you back um, in a few months after after the summer recess and uh, catch up with Flioa and see, you know, what what legislation looks like it's going to make it through and what what we think will die on the vine. Kathy Sands, good luck at Wiffle. Um, we're hoping you're having great attendance, and um, we'll see you next year to report on your next conference. Thank, Thank you, you both. Thanks, Deb.